Hello, hello, hello. Chris here with another installment of the Make It Podcast. And before we get to today's guest, I want to encourage everyone to go to our website at www.bonsai.film and click on the resources link. There you will be able to join our creative community and be given access to an ever-growing slew of film-related resources and tools at your disposal. Of course, at zero cost to your wallet. Again, that's www.bonsai.film. People are always like, should there be a .com after that? No, that's not it. It's actually .film. That's how awesome it is. So www.bonsai.film. Go there and you will enjoy and uh, potentially, hopefully, leverage our ever-growing resource library. And uh, you can also find our past podcast episodes there, watch some videos of me and Nick, all sorts of things you can do on the website. Maybe you buy a Make It t-shirt, a Make It hoodie, uh, a autographed uh, Make It poster, which is just an awesome way to commemorate any work you've done, celebrate yourself on set. So lots of good stuff. Go do it. Make it happen. And uh, you won't regret it. There you go. On to today's guest. Today, we have a conversation with Dean Shortland. Dean is a film, television, and stage actor, originally from Melbourne, Australia. He got a start in the Melbourne theater community, where he performed in various stage productions, such as As You Like It and You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. Recent television work includes Dolly Parton's Heartstrings, which is on Netflix, Dynasty, uh, which you can watch on the CW Network, Nashville, uh, on ABC and uh, the CMT and six uh, on the History Channel. Uh, I think you guys are going to really enjoy this conversation. I mean, at times it was laugh out loud funny. And then at other times it was sit up and pay attention, uh, inspiring and consultative. So without further ado, I give you the only man I know that's had to pay the rent, taking more odd jobs than I have. Actor Dean. Shortland. You're listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps aspiring professionals in film get where they're going faster by dissecting the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives in the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. My name is Dean Shortland. I'm an actor and I'm based in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, you might have recently seen me on Dynasty and I'm currently working on two feature films. One is a horror called Chest and the other one is called The Weekenders and that's more of a comedy. Dean, 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 Dean. Thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. Um, it's something I've been looking forward to ever since we got together over a little coffee uh, a couple of weeks ago at um, one of my favorite spots. And I was just fascinated by, I mean, a lot of things about you. Uh, one is you are in people that know you might know this, but people who don't 
Uh, you are a, a true multi-hyphenate. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, potentially uh, a polymath. <laughs> um, you, you are more than one thing for sure. And you're able to do a lot of things at a high level, uh, really, really well. And, uh, you are someone who sometimes I fancy myself as this type of person. So maybe I'm flattering myself, but I view you as someone who loves learning and will learn literally into the day they die. Uh, you're a lifelong learner. Um, and I admire that, that so, so much. Um, if people couldn't tell, uh, I don't think I'm breaking news here, but you are from Australia. You're, an, right. <laughs> you're an Aussie. Uh, yeah. So, so let's start there. Sure. Um, you went to a uh, a Christian school during That's grammar right. school. Were you performing at? the school? Uh, was it a strict religious environment? Um, how did that school inform what you're doing today? Right. Okay. Well, um, I guess it indirectly informed it, but uh, just to give you a little bit of background on the school. Um, if you've ever seen the movie saved. Yes. Uh, Love that movie. Very underrated. That was school for me. So, you know, people trying to out Jesus each other a little bit. Um, <laughs> now, full disclosure, I am. A can, can I, can I dig in on that a little? I'm sorry to interject. Sure. I, I need to dig in on that. Um, what does it mean? Like give me and give the listeners, uh, excuse me. I can't talk today. The listeners, um, an example of one or two examples of out Jesusing someone else. Like how would someone do that? Uh, just spending a lot of time in prayer, like trying to get people together to have Bible studies on the reg, you know, um, uh, just, just trying to be as sinless as possible. Um, at, at the risk at sometimes of, you know, becoming robotic and forgetting your humanity and amongst it. Um, I, I, I think, it, it became a very legalistic environment, let's just say, and watching people worship, you know, it's almost like they're straining so hard they're going to pop a vein in their forehead. Uh, at times it was a little over the top, we'll call it that much. Um, probably more from the point of view is in Australia, you go straight from high school into your vocational education. So a kid in high school will go straight to law school or med school. Uh, we don't have the intermediate four years. Um, Interesting. Yeah, so there's a lot of pressure on a 17-, 18-year-old kid to work out what they're going to do with the rest of their bloody life. Um, and so I, I didn't really jive with that at all. Um, so I, I had friends who were taking themselves way too seriously. I'm going to be an accountant. And then I'm going to go work at Ernst & Young or Deloitte or somewhere like that. Or I, I really want to be a lawyer. Do you, you think you want to be a lawyer? You're 17, 18 years old. You don't have much life experience. Admirable, yes. But you got to live a little. Mm -hmm. You know, um, 
I, I think that's why in the UK they have the principle of a gap year. Mm-hmm. I think it's really smart, but Australians don't really take that on board as much. I I farted around at high school, to be honest. I, I, I was a bit of a clown. I mixed with all groups, you know, your athletic kids, your super-duper Christian kids, your kids that go surfing. I just I kind of cut across all. But I, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. One day, I, you know, I was thinking I wanted to join the Army. The next day I wanted to, you know, become a pilot. It, <laughs> it, I mean, but what I realized about all that is, and, and bringing it back to the point, is as I digested it and really started to digest it the year after I finished high school because I didn't go straight to college, was I liked lots of things. Uh, the things I liked were the all all these heroified aspects of jobs, um, but I realized every job has a shitty part to it, you know. And I thought maybe I actually like the idea of playing these type of people mm-hmm. um, rather than actually doing it. Because I mean, my my parents ran a law firm, and you know, there's some really shitty parts to their job. Mm-hmm. Um, and my dad had been in pretty high level business for most of his life. And there were some pretty shitty parts of his job, you know? Um, so yeah, I just realized maybe I just want to play this stuff. So I decided to jump into theater school at that point. Yeah. And was that at, um, Monash? Uh, well, I first started off, um, just university. Take, yeah. Well that I ended up at Monash university, but I first started off just taking workshops in Sydney Mm-hmm. Um, just to get my feet under me, uh, just to understand what the hell am I getting myself into? Um, so and, I did classes for and, a year. And let me, before we jump into those classes, because um, on one hand, you described one type of 17-year-old that um, has is is trying to give off the presentation that they figured out their life. They're going to be a lawyer. Right. Um, but on the other hand, you describe yourself as someone that says, Hey, wait a second. That's, that's really ill planned. Um, that's, that's not a good idea. You need to live a little first. H- how did you, I mean, you're the same age, you're 17. How did you avoid that trap? Why, why was it? And how was it that you had a maturity level that would allow you to view the next steps in that way? I think it was more lack of focus and a maturity level. Um, uh, just to be frank with you, I mean, I, I would see certain things and just go, yeah, that sounds cool. No, I don't like that anymore. Um, and I wanted to be a kid. I wanted to play. I, you know, I would skip school and go surfing. Um, I'll go. That's the, to, that's the but, reason I didn't have my daughter go to San Diego State University because I thought right. she would skip school and go surfing, but maybe that's not a bad thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I didn't really put much stock in high school. Um, I, I, it's not a style of learning that worked for me, and the idea of com- competing against my peers to get, in, to get you know, great prestigious um, acceptance to college and whatnot. It, it just, I, I felt like I was fighting a battle, which didn't make sense for me. That's all I knew. 
And your parents being in business, were they all on board with you or did they feel like your lack of focus was going to get you in a lot of trouble? They felt my lack of focus was going to get me in a lot of trouble. They, they, always, <laughs> they always knew I was a bright kid. Um, well, that's what they tell me. I mean, your jury was out at that point in time because I didn't get the best grades. Uh, but I was easily distracted and I, I just got bored super quick. And uh, yes, the, so they were trying. I think the thing for them is they had an anxiety sitting in them of when is he going to find his arrow? Right. Speak. And is that going to be one that's, uh, financially viable that's going to provide him the best shot in life. Uh, you know, um, but my parents, they were never helicopter parents. So, um, they had plenty of their own shit to worry about. So, mm-hmm. they, so they kind of just trusted me to figure it out. And I had younger siblings that were still trying to figure themselves out and they were both at home. I'd moved out of home when I was 16, so I, I was already renting with, with, with friends. Oh, wow. Were you still in school Yeah, having moved out? Yeah. Now, that seems like – and see, this is so funny because I think as we go through this conversation, I think the listeners will kind of hear that this has been a theme throughout your life. What would make you leave your house where you have parents that are in business um, – um, lawyers, um, you're going to, um, a, a private Christian school. Why would you leave home at 16? Fierce and defiant levels of independence. That would be the easiest way to describe that. Um, I, I just, I wanted to do things on my terms and my parents didn't always agree with me and it upset mm-hmm. at times. And they said, well, if you're going to do things this way, you better figure it out by yourself. And so we all agreed that that was the best course of action. So there's this moment where this happens to every teenager and every teenager has this conversation, but it's at that moment that the parents say you have to figure it out on your own. that They usually shrink and, and shirk, you know, sort of back into uh, normalcy. Whereas for you and where your personality differs is that you said, okay, let's try it. Yep. And so I moved in with a church pastor and his wife who rented out rooms to guys. And, uh, you know, one of, the, one of those guys was in physical therapy school. One was, um, you know, uh, he was working in some type of trade. Um, and, it, I mean, it was cool. I mean, I had to learn about paying rent. I had to learn about you know, buying my own toiletries and things like that. I mean, I already knew how to make my bed and make my lunch and things like that. I, I was not used to having people wipe my ass, <laughs> so, um, you know, and, and that, that's not any fault of my parents. I think they equipped me very well to be independent. Um, they made it, they made it a point of if, if you want it, go get it. Mm-hmm. So consequently I didn't have an allowance as a kid. I had to go get a job. Um, and, you know, my mom, you know, and my dad both worked and they both had very, very busy jobs. So we had to learn to make our beds and make our lunch and get ourselves to school. My first job, I think I was nine years old, um, was working as a baker's boy. Okay. So what is it? What is a? So what is it? I don't know if that job exists 
here in the U.S.? Maybe it does. And what, what does a baker's boy do? Well, this is the olden days, Chris. Um, <laughs> no, it's um, it's just basically a baker's assistant. So I would help prep dough. Uh, so I was up at four a.m. on on weekends, um, helping prep dough for the baker or uh, making donuts to go into his shop. Mm-hmm. Um, the little things like that, cleaning up junk after. You know, he'd made what he needed to make because bakers. I mean, if 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 you if you know this, bakers get up really early. Um, so you know, I was doing that, and you know, I I felt like I was crushing it at life because I was taking home, you know, sometimes a hundred dollars a week. Wow. You know, and, and nine, nine years old, that is nine, very impressive. Kid, that's pretty damn good. Yeah. Um. Now that's in Australian dollars, mind you. So it probably would have worked at about sixty bucks, but still, that's a lot of money for a kid that age. Um, yeah, it's tremendous. And, yeah, and so I didn't. I wasn't big on spending as a kid. So, like, my mum taught me to put the money aside, and then one day when I had a certain amount of it, she goes, "Okay, you can go down to the local shops and go spend it. Go, go buy some." things you think you want to buy so i went and bought myself a beach towel and a basketball and lots of weird stupid things mm-hmm. but you know it was fun you know but i learned the value of i learned the value of the dollar pretty early on so yeah it's almost like you started being an adult and having adult traits and responsibilities and and behaviors you know well before your time so that you know, when you were 16, it really wasn't super foreign. You said you had a lot of jobs throughout. You had to pay rent. I'm curious, um, before we jump into to more performance-related things, I'm, I'm curious, what was, uh, if you had to name one, what was your strangest job you had uh, before you turned 18? Oh, oh, before I turned 18. Oh, wow. I wish you had a said when I was like in my early 20s because it was a real strange one. But um, uh, we, we can expand it. <laughs> Well, we'll start with the one before I was 18. Um, going door to door selling candy for the Cystic Fibros- Fibrosis Association. <laughs> I didn't even know what Cystic Fibrosis was. Um, so I would just say the word Cystic Fibrosis. That was all I knew what I was doing. <laughs> and then I, I think at one point I got so annoyed at people saying no to me. I, I just sat in a park on a park bench and started eating the candy. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, I have this mental image of you uh, just just walking uh, up to people's door and yeah. and just saying <laughs> when they answer cystic fibrosis. <laughs> yeah, I'm with the Cystic Fibrosis Association of Victoria. I'm selling uh, in Australia. We called them lollies. Um, and I would, would you be interested in purchasing some and supporting the cystic fibrosis, fibrosis, and I'm sure I've mispronounced it at times, uh, association. And, you know, I mean, and getting so many no's, it, it was funny. And I remember sitting on the bench eating that candy and just I look back on it now and I go, all these people with cystic fibrosis that were relying on me and I'm scarfing my head with candy. 
<laughs> be about supporting them. I'm a terrible person. Oh man, well that will tell you that, that maybe it's it's not. Maybe it's like this. If the cystic fibrosis sales force is made up of children selling lollipops and candy, uh, yeah. you know, maybe maybe that's not a a legitimate. Uh, way to to have a fundraiser to to raise money for a, a, a real element that people are having. So, level one, the chances of child predators coming after us. Yeah. <laughs> this is like actually pretty dangerous. Like like it's textbook, right? Like hey hey, I'm a kid with candy. Yeah, come uh, with your candy child. Yeah, I'm, and you know, as a parent now, I, I I'm about a thousand times more of a helicopter parent. Yeah. Under no circumstances. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, this was like, we're talking the 80s. Right, right. The, when this stuff was going on. Ah, uh, the 80s. Um, oh, glorious times. So you had an even stranger job in your 20s? Oh, yeah. Um, I, w- <laughs> I was operating a bounce house business for a guy. <laughs> so I was... And I would, a regular place they would end up sending me was um, the horse race track. Okay. <laughs> no, no clue why those things are related, but but please illuminate us. Well, you know, where the horse races, like the Kentucky Derby, we, we have a number of horse racing tracks in Australia and particularly Melbourne um, where horse, horse racing gambling is pretty prevalent. Mm-hmm. Um, but all these gambling addicted parents would cart the kids around on the horse track and then go, what the hell am I going to do with them? So I'm sitting there with this bounce house business, basically operating as childcare. And I would have been 23 at the time. Right. You know, hoping to God, one of these kids didn't break their neck, having no idea where their parents had gone to, because I would literally just drop them off. And having to set up these things, be first aid where I didn't have any first aid training, you know, and, and tear it down. It was just a really, really bizarre and awkward position for a young guy to be in. So you were their babysitter while the parents went off and drank and gambled, but you were also their caregiver if they yeah. get injured. Yeah. And all the while you were unqualified potentially to do all of it. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely all of it. You know, I mean, look, twenty-three year old guy—they didn't know a lick about me, and they're leaving their kid with me. That is insane. Yes, yes. Um, you know, fortunately, I'm a good guy, and I love kids, and you know, I—I've been raised pretty damn well. So lucky for them, <laughs> but it could have been a lot different. Yeah, it's it's really uh, it's really true. And uh, just the idea, I just, <clears throat> I just love this idea <laughs> of uh, of having this bouncy house set up at a horse racing track. Oh, it's bizarre! <laughs> Where some of the most nefarious people <laughs> in society <What>? go. <laughs> exactly. And then the guy tried to sell me the bouncy bouncy house business um, a couple of years later. And said, "Hey, you should really buy this bouncy house business from me." And honestly, he was making great money out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, Everybody likes to bounce, but I, 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 
at that point in time, you know, I'd learned about credit cards and credit card debt mm-hmm. and was really good at accumulating it. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> not, not in a position to buy the business. Um, no, I was an actor at this point. So, I mean, you know, it was like, you know, what the hell I was doing. But you were acting in theater, right? So, th- so this is the point of, of your life where you where you went out, dipped your toes in theater, yeah. And is that where you caught the acting bugs? That where you sort of fell in love with performance in earnest? Uh, no, I think I kind of fell in love with it just from watching actors. But it, it happened before I started performing. Which actors were you watching that you were sort of enamored with and wanted to emulate? Oh, man. Well, Tom Cruise is an obvious one. I mean, going back to the days of Top Gun. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I, I certainly didn't have a uh, a highbrow palette, we'll call it that. Um, but, you know, I mean, it was, it was the movies like Top Gun. It was Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. It was, you know... Um, Oh, if we go a little highbrow, um, Jaws. Mm-hmm. It, it was stuff like that, you know, um, that really kind of started to make me think about that. Oh, but going back to the point, Top, uh, Tom Cruise was pretty – I was pretty enamored with him. I mean, like seeing things like A Few Good Men, Top Gun, um, what else? Um, Born on the 4th of July, movies like that. And, you know, I mean, as a young guy and seeing someone in that type of hero status, I thought, wow, what an amazing, what an amazing life this guy has. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have some different views about Tom Cruise now. Um, I've, I've certainly cottoned on to some different actors that I, I really, really love even, even more so than Tom. But, you know, I mean, he was probably, I would say he was a figure apart. I would say there were some females that I really admired, um, Meg Ryan being one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I always thought she was really, really pretty, first of all, but um, just everything that she did on screen made me feel good. Yeah, yeah. That's a really great way to describe, you know, the you know prime peak Meg Ryan. Yeah. She was just someone who you watch them on screen and they make you feel completely warm. Yeah. Like, like, yeah. It left, it left me with a feeling that, okay, everything's okay. Yep. That's it. So, so you're watching these actors and you're just admiring what they do. And and that's where you said, I want to try this. And then you went and started doing some theater in uh, Australia yeah. And this is before you went to school for it. So, so what no, was th- that was during. Oh, it was during. OK, got you. And and so. I started taking classes, just workshop classes in Sydney to figure yeah. out what the hell I was doing. Um, and I'm still asking that question daily. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so just to get a bit under me and then I thought I'm going to go see if I can get an agent and see if I can get on one of these local soaps or something like that. Um so, so let me stop you right there because this is one of the big questions that a lot of people in our audience, new actors might ask, new uh, creators might ask, what is the process of getting an agent? Uh, what do you need to show the agent? What are you looking for in a, in a great agent? 
Well, as as a as a teenager, it's very different to when you're an adult. Uh, I would say, in my opinion, mm-hmm. as a teenager, you kind of get a little bit more of a whole pass because they figure they can craft you a little bit. Got it. They they can help sort of hone you into being something. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you're young, you know, interesting or good looking person. Um, in Australia and you show self-confidence, um, it's, it's probably not too difficult to go get an agent, whether they're a great agent or not is another story. Um, most of the agencies out there, when you have no experience and you're young, you know, they're still shopping around for extras work, trying to just get you in somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, just so that you can get some experience on a set, figure out that type of stuff. Um, I got my first thing on a show called Home and Away back in Australia, and I was 19. Um, I didn't like it, to be honest. Um, it wasn't an environment which I felt good about. Hmm. Uh, and uh, that was my very first television experience. Yeah, it was in 1994, right? That's right. Yeah. And, I, I mean, I would still audition for things, throughout the years afterwards, but I mean, I, it didn't give me the best taste for what working in television was going to be like. Um, and Australian television also was very different to us TV. I mean, on those soaps, they're probably, you know, I mean, they're pumping out five episodes a week. Mm, yeah. I mean, the, the hours are extraordinary and they don't have residuals or anything like that. It's, it's tough work. Um, yeah, and is that, so is that what you mean by the environment? Just that the hours were crazy long, and the pay was not, and pay was kind of short than you know, shorter than it should be. The hours were crazy long. The money was not great. I think as a as a young person on, you know, in, in television with little to no experience, um, it was very much stand here, say this. Oh, got it, got it, got it. So. And, but you went through that. You had that performance and and uh, or or that gig. You left there and it feels like there was a moment of doubt where you maybe almost gave it up, right? Where you, where you ended up going to, uh, Swinburne University of Technology. Is that- yeah, that, that happened a few years later, but, um, yeah, definitely. Um, in, I mean, I, there was a fair bit of acting that happened straight after that thing. Um, but it was mainly theater. Um, you know, I, I was still sort of tooling around in my early twenties, just trying to figure it out, uh, auditioning for things. Um, I found myself mainly doing theater work. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was work, which was more easily accessible for me. Um, and you know, I, I didn't really have a career or anything at that point. So I was just kind of, uh, how do I say this? I, uh, yeah, I was just kind of open to opportunity. We'll call it right. Yeah, um, it, I and so so when you did decide to go to college, yeah, was that part of it? Just that you had had an aimlessness about yourself, and that you were you were really just kind of floating from freelance gig to freelance gig. Yep, I think that's definitely a part of it. I mean, I decided I wanted to go to theater school, so. I auditioned and I got into one called Ballarat University. Um, 
And so got in and did a year there. Mm-hmm. I, I decided I wanted to be back in Melbourne. Ballarat was about two hours outside of Melbourne. Um, I, they didn't like me auditioning for jobs. Uh, that pissed me off. That's really odd. Yeah. Um, you know, the fact that I was auditioning for the very, for jobs and it was the very thing I was being trained to do. I, I, I always wanted to work. So, um, I ended up having a, you know, a disagreement with one of the head teachers there. And, um, I said I was going to continue audition for things and potentially I would miss classes. So we went our separate ways and I ended up transferring to another theater school, Monash University back in Melbourne, which gave me much greater access to auditions. Um, they didn't care if I was auditioning or not. Um, and I was also able to pick up another major in psychology, Mm -hmm. um, just to round out my palate a little bit more. So, um, yeah, we talked about that before about, about, um, and I hope we get to touch on it in this conversation again, where, you know, that psychology background you have informed your performances and helped you become a better person performer i think so yeah um i I, you know i've always been pretty fascinated by human behavior and um you know that probably helped me to choose psychology as a major um i didn't realize there was going to be so much research in it but um (laughs) (laughs) there's a lot of research But, but it's really funny i mean the, all the research in itself, I mean, it wasn't really so much about what I learned in psychology, but it was a skill of research that became a very valuable tool to me as an actor. Um, I'd love yeah. to dig in on that a little bit um, because I know that that some of our guests that have come on here, their secret weapon is is how well they can research their, their part. Um, yeah. What, is there a particular practice that you have when you, when you research or when you get a part, you know, where do you usually start with your research? Well, probably the, the first thing I want to do if I'm looking for, you know, to find out a little bit more about the role I'm going to play is, you know, first off is time period for me, honestly. Um, cause you give them basic information in a breakdown. Um, you, if you're a guy, chances are you're reading to play a guy. Mm-hmm. Um, it starts with things like that, and you're probably reading in your age type. Uh, so you're asking simple questions like, you know, are they married, whatnot. And that, those things you figure out pretty quickly by reading a breakdown. But um, I want another time period, and that will inform cultural decisions, mm-hmm. uh, the little things, also dialect. Um those are the first things that I'd be, I'd be looking to do. So what was going on at the time? What was in the news at the time? What were they paying attention to? Now, depending on the show, some shows, they're not going to care about that type of stuff, but you know, I I think it's a responsibility as an actor to really dig into that. Even if you don't think they're requiring it or not, do your homework. Um, You know, sometimes you get the luxury you're just playing in modern day and more often you do get this luxury. You're playing in modern day. You're an every man, you know, and you can largely walk in there and be yourself. 
And honestly, a lot of casting decisions these days are made on that basis. Is this person the character? Um, but you know, I, for me, I'm looking for, I'm looking for that meat behind what's going on, you know, um, as much as possible. Yeah, I think I, I think that that is is so key to to doing a good job. Do you do your research? Um, and this is actually a question I should have asked a hundred people by now, but I actually have found that I haven't. I don't think I have asked it. Um, yeah. Do you start your research at the audition point, or do you do it only after you know you book the gig? I I, I think the job is the audition initially. Um, I think I think you have two jobs. Often as an actor, I mean, people that don't consider the audition the job are kind of out of their mind. Um, <laughs> really. Because, I mean, that's what you spend most of your time doing as one of the most, as one of the largest roles and responsibilities you will have as an actor. Got it. Auditioning. Yeah. So, yes, you've got to do your research prior as prep for that audition. As if you, as if you already booked the gig. As if you already booked the gig. Got it. So, uh, going back, you, you're in theater school you're, you're uh, frustrated. They won't make you, they don't like the fact that you're trying to book work while you're in school. And at some point, uh, in this journey in Australia, you decide that you need to, to, to really pursue this the way you want to, you need to leave Australia and you just have one of the best stories uh, <laughs> that I've heard about what it takes, the dedication and what you at times may have to sacrifice to really go for what you want out of your own life. Um, people have a tough time with that. You know, it's a, it's yeah. a really, you know, the courage it takes to, to unabashedly go after what you want is, is a big deal for people. That's always easier said than done. Uh, because when you left Australia, you had a, a lot of reasons to stay. Is that right? Yeah, plenty. I mean, I, I had a pretty good thing going on. I mean, I was at the time I, I had been working in advertising. There's so much that happened in that window. I mean, I went and got a business degree cause I faked my way into a business job. Um, and <laughs> something about business so that I don't fudge the whole thing. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I was working in advertising at the time. Um, I just, I, I just played Charlie Brown in um, the musical "You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown," and I was working hosting a TV show, um, just on a small channel. But you know, it was still a good gig, and we had about five hundred thousand viewers. And, and that was What's the name of the show, the short film show, and it happened, okay. you know, ten forty-five on a Saturday night, and you know, people nerds watched it. Um, and it was great, but, um, I, I, you know, I had a girlfriend, had a dog, had a great little apartment right in the middle of Melbourne and things were seemingly pretty good, but I was tired. Um, I was really tired. I was working way too much. Um, I was doing, I was not doing the right things. Um, Hmm. I, I, I felt unsettled about it. I, I knew I, I, I wasn't, I, I was spending all this time, you know, working in business and hosting this thing. And I was scared I was going to blink and hit 40 and had not, 
actually gone and done what I was meant to do. And I built up so many habits while living in Melbourne and, you know, Melbourne's an expensive city. So you've really got to bust your ass to make a buck and pay your way. Yeah. I I just didn't think it was going to happen for me in Melbourne. Um, so I just, I up and left and my girlfriend was pissed at me. Um, and, uh, I, I gave, you know, pretty much gave up everything, put everything that fit into a snowboard bag in a backpack and said, I'm going to go to Nashville, which was not an acting city in my mind time. Um, but my brother had lived there for a number of years and loved it. And I thought, I'm going to go there. I'm going to stop there and just see what life looks like for me and use that as a reset button. Um, and when you first came, I mean, well, let's, there's so much to dig into there and, and unpack because in the retrospect, I think it's easy to say I packed up everything in a ski bag that would fit into a ski bag. I left my girlfriend. I came to the United States, but there was enormous pressure from like this wasn't just a girl you were casually dating. No, I know for a long time. Um, and you know, like there was enormous pressure from her for you to stay. Is that, is that true? Uh, I mean, I, no, I don't think so. Oh, okay. I, I don't think so. I mean, I think she wanted me to stay for sure, but I mean, we weren't engaged or anything like that. So, um, we'd just known each other a long time and things were going well. Um, so I think it blindsided. Uh, I, I, I can't remember. Were you or were you not uh, cohabitating? Were you living together at the time? No. Or, or no? Okay, good. Yeah, that'd um, be a totally different situation. Yeah, no, I, I was, I'd never actually cohabitated at that point with anyone. Um, so, uh, you know, I liked having my own space. <laughs> so you're not, you're not missing, you weren't missing much. No. <laughs> You know, I, we lived around the corner from each other. So we could walk to each other's house mm-hmm. and, you know, my things would be where they needed to be. Her things were where she, hers needed to be. And we just got together when we got together. And, um, but you know, I really did care about her a lot. Um, and I'd known her since high school. Um, but, but, it, but it's not just the relationship either. I mean, it, you really were just canceling everything you had going at that point and all the equity you'd built up in those areas to yep. go try something new. How did, how did you develop the fortitude? And I guess you've always had it, but, but what were the main doubts and how did you overcome the doubts uh, before you made that move? Well, I, I just asked, I asked very simple questions. What's the worst thing that can happen to me is the first question I asked. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I started to pick apart that answer. I wrote, I wrote down like kind of mind dumped on, you know, some blank paper. The worst thing that can happen to me is this. I go broke. I don't get a work visa. Um, I have to leave the U S. Um, but none of, none of those things took the air out of my lungs or my ability to, you know, have a bite to eat if I really needed to. And I always had my parents back. If I was, if I was broke, starving and had nothing, I knew that they would give me some money. Yeah. 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 
I never, I never really took them up on it, but, um, Oh no, that's not true. I think at one point they gave me a tiny bit of money. Um, <laughs> but it wasn't out of destitution. I think it was just, they just loved me. So, right. Right. And they, they just wanted to give me some money. My mom has always been super generous with things like that. So, um, but yeah, I think they, they were the questions I had to ask myself. What's the worst that can happen? I go broke. I can't get a work visa. I have to leave the U.S. All right, at that point in time, I had a British passport and an Australian passport, so I knew I could. I was portable, and I could always figure out how to find a way to make a buck, legally or illegally, if necessary, uh, to get to my next location. Mm-hmm. Um, when I say illegally, I mean I'm not talking about illicit activity. I'm talking maybe working for cash under the table, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, I was fortunate. I never really had to do that uh, when I got to the US. Uh, but I didn't. I didn't know for sure that I was going to go back into acting again. All I knew was I needed to have a hard reset, and I was so restless, and I knew I wasn't doing what I was meant to do. Yeah, um, yeah. I think I down knew I needed to act again. So, th- so your voice wasn't. Necess- you also had a voice in your head saying you are not living the life you set out to lead. That's correct. That, that's the easiest way to answer that. And I think deep down there was, there was, uh, there was a very, very quiet voice, uh, going, you need to act, you need to act. I was ignoring it. I, uh, I think in part out of fear, um, fear of not having enough money to, you know, enjoy my life. Right. Fear. I mean, that was one area I was fearful. What if it doesn't work out? That was not about, oh, well, you know, it's it's not like moving countries. This was scarier, way scarier for me at the time. What if it doesn't work out? What if I get 101 million rejections and nothing transpires? Right. You know, I mean, that. It wasn't until a few years in of living in Nashville that I realized I, I, I needed to get back into it. Like, I mean, I, well, more the point, I acknowledged I had to get back into it. Right. Because um, up to that point, some of those things had really come true, right? Like you weren't really able to get the work visa and well, no, I, have it stick the way you wanted. Like you had to make a couple of trips back to Australia, right? Yeah. Yeah, I did. I mean, I, fortunately, because I'd, I'd gone to business school, I, I was it was easy for me to get a work visa. But the problem is with the first work visa I got, um, the guy wasn't um, very financially responsible and stopped paying my paycheck. Mm. So I had to scramble very quickly to get another job um, just to keep me here. And any job that I had while I was living in Nashville initially, um, while they were well-paid jobs, were all – placeholder to me just so I can figure, so I can crack this nut, so to speak. Ah, got it. Um, so like, I mean, I, I probably spent more, you know, gave a lot of lip service of saying, yeah, no, I love this. I really want to make this my life and blah, blah, blah. But deep down, I knew that wasn't true. Uh, it was really, yeah, just a placeholder. And I'm very fortunate for the opportunities that people gave me in that respect to let me work for them. And hopefully I did good work for them. Um, I tried. So um, you, 
yeah, and and um, so much of, I mean, in a way, uh, and there's no shame in it. In a way, as an independent, we all do this. We all have work we're doing as a placeholder um, sort of position until um, the next gig happens. The thing you really care about, the thing you're really passionate about, and. I believe you're quoted as saying, um, and speaking about Nashville specifically, uh, this is a small town, and uh, and I'm going to paraphrase here, and you just have to take it by the nuts. Um, oh, God. <laughs> God, I was a dickhead back then. <laughs> but but I think but I think but I think it's I think it's you know there's a part of it that's kind of quintessentially you and and how you've lived your life, and so I'm curious, um, you know. If you had to give, oh my god! Uh, I, <laughs> I mean, I remember. I mean, that was back in two thousand and eight or two thousand and nine. It's it's a it's a it's a great quote, and, and I'm, I'm I'm curious. Um, so funny. Uh, you you, have, you just have to take it by the nuts, and um, so god, I'm such an asshole. Uh, I, I'm, I'm wondering if you have advice for an actor right now. Like, what if you had one piece of advice for an actor? What what would it be? Uh, it's the same advice I've been given. I mean, I, I've, I've been given, I've been really, really lucky with some of the people in my life that give me advice. Um, don't give up. Uh, just don't give up. I, I, 100% keep going no matter what is in front of you. But I would also say this, the, the hand in hand with that, find a side hustle that gives you the flexibility to act. Hmm. Yeah, because I think that's one of the things that's unique about you. And I think a lot of the people in um, the film community in uh, Nashville, excuse me, is uh, when they think about you, they, they think of you as a guy who juggles a lot of different things. And um, I think a lot of people wonder, how do you do it? So so how, how do you manage to be a CTO of a company, which is no small job at all. And and, and not something most people would qualify as a, as a side hustle, even if it's that way in our mind, Uh, you've got um, uh, a thriving real estate business. You have uh, major acting gigs uh, with dynasty in Nashville. I think you're starting a web series with our friend, Matt Cushing. Um, Yeah. uh, Yeah. yeah. Uh, Coming up. And, and on top of that, you've got a family. So how do you, how do you do it all? And what is your advice to, to juggling those things? Well, first of all, you need to be a master negotiator. Um, but it's also working out, it's working out what to say no to. I mean, I, I used to be a person that would, when it came to acting work, I would just go, yeah, I'll do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but not everything is necessarily going to be the most beneficial spend of your time. Um, and as you get older, particularly when you become, a, you know, a parent and a, a spouse, um, even putting the job stuff aside, you, you don't want your family to get lost in the fray. That's, that is, I mean, everything we do is about quality of life. Right. Mm-hmm. And, it's about, it's about love. It's about laughter. It's about peace, whether you're an actor or whether you're a plumber or an electrician or, or whatever, whatever it is you choose to do with your time. 
ultimately you're looking to find a way to maintain those things in your life, love, laughter, peace, stability, security, safety. Um, so I, I analyze every, every opportunity that comes my way now. And I go, is this how I want to spend my time and what is the return on it? And it doesn't always necessarily be, it's not always necessarily a monetary return. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the opportunity is one of artistic growth, uh, which I think is sometimes more valuable than money. If you have the luxury to be able to choose that. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, I think I've answered your question that way. Um, don't, don't, don't say yes to everything. Say yes to the things that are going to take, that are going to um, uh, advance you on the path that you're setting out to follow. So right. goofing off and doing a little weekend filming thing with your friends, if you have things that you need to be spending time on that is not that, do those things. And, you know, um, you, you've got to be a little bit strategic about your choices in order to juggle it all. And part of that is saying no to the right things as well, right? I rarely say no to the right things. Well, say, well, I, I did that, that, that turn of phrase was really bad. Uh, let me put it more specifically, understanding which things to say no to. Sure. Absolutely. Um, so like, for example, uh, with in, uh, most of the acting work that I get these days is out of town. Um, and being out of town with a toddler is, uh, that puts a lot of strain on my spouse. Mm -hmm. My my wife, Rita is fantastic and incredibly supportive of what I do. But I mean, if I'm just gone all the time, uh, she's going to be going, what what are we getting out of this? Cause we're not, cause we're not getting you. Um, so we, we set a few ground rules. Um, if I, if I am working on a project that's going to take me more than two days, uh, well, all work needs to be paid, first of all, unless it's a really close friend and we're just goofing off together. Mm-hmm. And my wife agrees, yeah, go have fun. Because <laughs> uh, sometimes I just need to do that for sanity. Right. Um, but more often than not, all work needs to be paid. If I'm gone for two or more days, it's not about the money. It's about what is the job and how good is the job. They're really important questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, oh, is this something that you are going to be able to put on your reel? Is this going to? Are you going to be able to use this to get more work? That 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 is the real qualifier. There, are you going to be able to use this work to get more work? And if you aren't, don't do it. And how do you define roles that are going to fall into that category? Because that seems like a, an incredibly nuanced thing. What is it about a role when you get it that you say to yourself, okay, that one is going to springboard more work? I want to know who's involved from the crew and the cast perspective. So if it's an, if it's a top notch crew and you know, we have some really great crew in town um, you know, uh, I could reel off 20 names right now of people who are just fantastic that if any of them are involved, I know they're taking it seriously and they have plans of it going somewhere. Mm-hmm. 
so that's from the first point of view they're they're looking for some type of distribution or they they have a way of getting it into the right hands right so the right eyeballs are going to be on it and from a cast perspective um I need to know that the people involved in the project are as serious, at the very least, as serious about their work as I am. Yeah. Yeah. At the very I, least. I, I know that Nick and I, the name, first thing that, that we look at um, is can the team execute the vision? So the vision and the plan is, is, is excellent, can be excellent. But if we don't think the team can actually execute it, then that's a huge red flag. And I guess that would be our version of what you said about, do they take their work seriously? Can I use the same version? Because I think that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Can they, can they execute? That is essentially it. And how committed is everyone to the project? If they're just, farting around and they don't care. Uh, why are we even here? Right. What are, what are we, what are we doing here? Right. Exactly. So um, time is way more valuable than the money I get paid as an actor. Yeah. It's so true. And like, and like once you hit 35, it feels like um, that is all there is that, that, that there, there comes a flip. I, I think before you're 35, you really, you know, money is the thing. Like, how do I get as much money as possible? And then you're 35 and you're like, well, how can I steal back more time? Oh, yeah. No, um, absolutely. Yeah, because you just start to think to yourself, well, how much do I have left? Um, um, uh, I think part of that is because as you get older, people around you start to die. <laughs> it's just really, it's just really kind of... Um, unfortunate part of, of maturity and getting older is like you just start to see people, um, uh, come and go or yeah, come and go. Cause you, you'll, kids will be born, but, but you just start to see people go specifically. Yeah. And it makes you question your own amount of time. And are you using your time, um, correctly? Because you find that money is, is a great tool. Right. And, and I'm not a big fan of people who say, well, you know, uh, money isn't important. Well, then you've never been poor. Um, <laughs> uh, I grew up pretty modestly and I would tell you that, um, I would not want to go back to that. Although sure. there is strength from it because I know that I can live that way and right. still be a good person and still be good in life. Um, because I've had those stints where I've lived in my, you know, white Honda Accord for a month or, um, you know, I've had those those times where, you know, you're a kid and you're eating uh, a mustard sandwich, <laughs> you know, so there's uh, uh, there's a strength that comes with it. But but nobody would ever go back. But once you've turned 35, you know, the, the money becomes definitely secondary to the time. Uh, I, I want to go back to one thing you said uh, sure. really briefly. You said it took you about four years to get your first gig in Nashville once you'd gotten here and started working and, and sort of acclimating and, and um, yourself and assimilating yourself to uh, the U.S. and Nashville specifically. What was that first gig and how did you get it? Um, well, it happened. I mean, I was not taking my acting seriously again as out of fear. Um. And so, but I would still goof off with friends and this was before I really zoned in 
and I was making web series stuff and just acting in random things, half the time drunk, um, <laughs> you know, or, you know, partying a little too hard. And so I, I did a web series called Born Country um, that David Cross helped fund mm-hmm. um, with um, John Sewell and um, uh, uh, Jeff Wyatt Wilson and a few, uh, written by Seth Pomeroy and a few other people. And so I just started to do that and people are going, you're really good. You should do more of this. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and I ended up getting dragged into the sketch comedy scene in town um, just with friends. Hey, do the sketch. All right, cool. Um, I was still, I was not married at the time when all this was going on. So I, I was pretty much, you know, it was either be at home or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then I ended up meeting Matt Cushing at one of these sketch things. And we we're talking about how it's fun doing all the things that we're doing, but it'd be really great to see some people raise the bar in terms of the quality of production with some of these sketches and things. Um, not, not that the sketches weren't good, but the execution was not necessarily great from a production level. Mm-hmm. Um, that I was seeing, I mean, I'm sure there was great stuff out there. I just wasn't seeing it. Um, and before I could blink, Mac had written a treatment for a web series called the agents of fortune mm-hmm. and he bought it to me and said, yeah, we should do this. We should totally do this. I'm like, this is great. This is great. Sure. Let's do it. And, um, within a couple of weeks, there was a grip truck pulled up at my house and there was crafty and there was a crew. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh my God. He was not joking. Um, and I thought I, I did. I, I was just not used to people taking stuff that seriously. I was saying, Oh, great. We'll have a guy with a handy cam. We'll have some fun. Right. But you know, the grip truck pulling up at the house and our house being turned inside out because I agreed to have them shoot at the house, not knowing what to expect. Um, and I, I realized I was actually working with real professionals, production professionals. Right. And, it made me. It, it made me start to go. Oh shit! I better get my. I, I better get my shit together here. Um. So we shot some of this over, you know, maybe a year, and out of the blue, I get a phone call from uh, a lovely lady by the name of Kim Cookie McRae. Um, saying, "Hey, uh, I got your number from uh, Jamie Bradley, who was a friend of mine." I really want to rep you. I think you will book work if you put in the work. Mm-hmm. And I was like, ah, oh, you know, I don't really like agents that much. And I was kind of silly about it. But um, as we chatted a little bit more, I realized this, this woman was actually really serious and she took, she, she took the business seriously. Mm-hmm. I, I just said, look, these, there's plenty of things I don't like to do. If you're looking for someone to do extras work, I'm not your guy. Um, I don't really want to do Jesus films. I don't want to do music videos. I don't, uh, you know, <laughs> do payday loan ads, and I don't want to do personal injury attorney ads. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have things other than that, let's talk. 
And she goes, there's actually plenty other than that. And then started to educate me a little bit on what was going on in terms of episodic and film in the Southeast. And Atlanta was booming at that point. Uh-huh. And I had no idea. Um, it continues but, to boom. Yeah. And, and I, 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 I said, let's do it. So I went and got headshots done. I had a friend take them because I was still too damn cheap to go, you know, pay a lot of money to get headshots done because I didn't even know if this was going to work out. Um, and fortunately that friend took some great headshots and helped me to book my very first gig in Nashville, which coincidentally was on a music video. (laughs) But I mean, it took, it took about a year. Oh no, mate, that's not true. Probably about six months being on a roster before I booked my very first thing. Um, and she said, look, it's a music video, but it's with Ben Foster. And I'm like, oh, I know who that is. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I got it. And Ben Foster is no joke. No. Uh, so a music video for Chris Stapleton called Fire Away. Um, I was thrown on a pretty intense set. Ben was in full method mode. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I didn't. I, I had no idea what our shot, what what our shoot was going to look like because the director was very freeform. Mm-hmm. Um, he liked to just sort of fill it out and grab footage as he wanted to. So I had no idea what a shot list looked like or anything. So that was a uh, that was a trial by fire walking back onto a set after so many years. You know, well, a, a, a gig that I booked that I didn't have any allegiance to, so to speak. Um, Mac and I agreed to start off Agents of Fortune together, so we were kind of sure, sure. We were both acting in it, mm-hmm. but this was one where I booked when they, no one knew me. I was not a completely unknown quantity. Um, in the end, they ended up cutting about ninety-five percent of all the footage that they used of me. Um, I felt like a miserable failure. Um, but that experience on set was so critical. Um, it, I, I made plenty of mistakes that day. I'm sure I, I was definitely in over my head. Um, but I, I talked to cookie about the whole thing and you know, she goes, just keep at it. Keep at it. This is fine. We're, we're fine. Keep going. Mm-hmm. And so, that, but that was my very first gig on a music video. I, I, I really, it's a hell of a video, Chris Stapleton and Ben Foster though. Yeah, and Margarita Levy Eva. Mm. Um, who were, and Ben and Margarita were both the most lovely humans. Um, very intense to work with, but man, I learned a lot just watching them. I mean, I we had one scene where Ben Foster literally throws me on the blacktop, um, and it it wasn't stunt coordinated. um and came up and hugged me and he goes are you okay you okay i said yeah i'm 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 fine but man it 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 was a very visceral shoot we'll call it that and yeah definitely that was um that that was a very very short two-day boot camp of what it was going to be like working in the industry again for me yeah, that's got to be pretty intense. It's awesome that you have a Ben Foster moment, by the way, which is um, so perfectly aligned with what people's perceptions of a Ben Foster moment might be. Uh, 
and and he's a, he's a bananas actor. He's one of my one of my favorites. Um, it's extraordinary. Yeah. Um. So. I want to stay on this subject, this topic of learning. You know, if uh, you've had a ton of experience doing theater, uh, web series, yep. music videos, feature films, uh, episodic, yep. um, and then you have this rich background in, in business um, and and in entrepreneurialism. Um, so um, people can learn a lot from you. Uh, if you had one month to teach someone how to act. And so they had to go from zero to competent and, and get a gig. Um, what would be the first three things you would teach them? Oh, well, the first thing, try and find the humanity in every line. And how yep. do you do that? If I may ask, dig into that a little bit. Think about a human reaction to the line you've been given to read. What, how would you respond to this line? Ah, uh, got it. Got it. No, no, I mean, that's a, it's a weird, it's a, it's a weird question and I'm going to do my best to answer it. I mean, cause my initial thought was I would get them to read Ivana Chubbuck's The Power of the Actor. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, that gives such a fundamental basis uh, for anyone who wants to develop the craft. Yeah. yeah our friend, Matt Williams, uh, recommended that one as well. Oh, you did? Yeah. Well, he's right. He was right. Um, I, 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 I think anyone that ignores that book is really missing out. Um, it's, it's such an intense, rich read and you know, you, it, you'll get exhausted in reading it, but it, 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 there's so much to learn in that. Um, I, 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 I would say there'd be a couple of books that they would be reading. They'd be reading that they'd be reading Jenna Fisher's the actor's life, mm-hmm. um, where she shares her journey from getting started to booking huge work. I mean, it's brutally honest, gives very practical advice on what to expect as life as an actor. Um, I, I would watch, so much TV and film. I think, I think that it, that is the best way to learn. Yeah. You've mentioned that a few times that that's been like your method for not only inspiration, but for learning. So, uh, going back, you would, you would try to have them find the human reaction, the humanity in every line. You'd make sure they read a series of books. Um, how are they feeling? Why are they feeling that way? Yeah. The things that they need to be asking, you know, it's, um, put yourself, throw on the character's shoes. Why? What's going on there? So, I mean, you know, you take a really simple scenario as like a, a simple scenario. I've got to get to the store. I mean, well, why do you need to get to the store? What are you looking to get from the store? When do you need to be back? What is the consequence if you don't get to the store? Asking those simple things. That's actually great advice for writers as well. Uh, when you're doing character development, um, understanding what the simple needs of the character are outside of the big macro plot changing story driving needs. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, I think you get to a point where you feel like you can start to let it go a little bit as an actor. I, um, what I mean by that is 
So we study, we, we work out how to break down a character, break down a character and, you know, uh, what, what do they want? Well, you know, uh, is the scene they're involved in a love scene, a power scene, you know, what are their obstacles? How serious are those obstacles? They start to ask all those questions. Eventually you can start to let it go and just lean into who that character is and allow yourself to respond organically. Mm-hmm. If you can empathize with who they are. I mean, basically as an actor, you need to become a master of empathy. I love that. I love that. Dean, um, thank you. Um, thank you so much for, for your time. This is in- incredibly valuable. I have one last question for you before we uh, only, be- begin the wrap up. Um, go, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Only one question. One more, one more. Well, it's actually, honestly, I have probably three more questions, but they're more like wrap up questions. I have, I have one more question, <laughs> uh, pertaining to the bulk of the conversation. And yeah, we, we definitely should do a round two. I could probably talk to you for another two hours here. I think we, we just, we talked about that when we met the first time that we could probably just sit here all day at the, <laughs> at the sacrifice of, of our, our families and our work. Um, because it's so much fun. Um, I, I have to ask you this. Um, do you get, is it more frustrating for you when uh, people, because um, I'm sure this has happened in your life, especially here in Nashville. Yeah. Do you enjoy the attention you get for your accent? Um, and, uh, <laughs> or does it annoy you? And, and, um, how often in your single days did you deploy your accent for your benefit? <laughs> honestly, pr- well, I'll answer point two first. Honestly, pretty rarely. Really? Um, a part of that was because I was never actually very good at hitting on girls. Oh, man. I was too socially awkward. Um, like, I mean, I could run around and uh, – be- here is me in a big social environment. I get very socially awkward. I get social anxiety. And if I don't have something to do, I don't want to be there. Um, so, you know, I would, I would find a function that I have to perform to get through that, (laughs) you know, but if I'm put in a room of strangers and like, one of my friends says, go talk to that girl. Uh, yeah, I'm useless, <laughs> you know? Um, so that's, I, whatever, not, not in that capacity. There've been a couple of opportunities I have deployed it. I wanted to get out of a speeding fine, um, but it wasn't a female officer. It was just like, I just act like, act like a clueless, very friendly Australian. Right. Um, so I've used it in that for a, um, yeah, I think wants to get a better deal on a car. Right. Right. <laughs> I use it to try and disarm them a little bit. Um, <laughs> but I mean, but in terms of point one on that question, I, I don't like the attention typically, um, as an actor, I find I have to spend so much time playing Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want people focusing on my accent yes. um, because if they focus on my if they focus on my accent, they're thinking of me as 
somebody who is an Australian, so he reads for Australian roles. Or in my case, British and Australian, because that's where my parents' heritage is from. But, I mean, I spent 18 months living in an American accent to learn it because it was that important to me. It was probably the biggest challenge I had to overcome as an actor, learning that accent so that because I, 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 I did not want to be limited in the work I could do. I already had enough limitations. Uh, you know, I was a male mm-hmm. in 40s. I'm white. You know, and you know, so the, the, I, I can only play those type of characters, right? You know, but I didn't want to narrow the field any further and say, you know, oh, and he's Australian, so therefore, if we have an Australian role, we'll cast him. Got it. Yeah, to- totally me? understand. I, I was I was curious about that, so I'm, I'm glad you you humored me and um, and, and let me know. Um, Dean, tell everybody where they can find you and your work on the internet and on social media. Okay. Uh, well, in terms of finding my work, I usually post most stuff on IMDB. Um, and it's just Dean Shortland, D E A N S H O R T L A M D. Um, you can follow me on Instagram at Dean Shortland as in one word, Dean Shortland, on Twitter, at Dean Shortland also. Uh, they're the best ways to reach me. Facebook's just a shit show for me, so let's just not even bother with that. I just <laughs> um, and just posting pictures of my kid to appease my family back in Australia. Mm-hmm. So, um, But, yeah, if you wanted to follow me on Instagram and you are interested in watching me uh, playfully humiliate my toddler – and post about work, <laughs> we will do it. We will do just great. And I can assure you. Yeah, I um, love it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, man, I, all these questions, I wrote so much and we didn't get to cover it. Oh, well, well, we definitely will have to do uh, a round two for sure. Um, because your life story, your background is so, I, I feel like, I feel the same way, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I, there was, I have a, a folder full of questions here that um, I'll have to save for round two or that, or that you, or that you actually answered indirectly um, yeah. through another question. So um, it, there's one thing I really did want to hit on though, if I may. Yeah, please. Um, and like, cause you asked the question, um, in one of the questions you said, um, best piece of advice I've been given in my career. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I kind of touched on it a little bit, but I really wanted to hit home on this. Um, first piece of advice came from Alan Dale. Um, and you may see him, he's now in dynasty, but he was in lost. He was on the OC. Um, I met him at theater school when I was in my twenties in Australia. Um, he, his words, like I said, is don't ever give up ever. I mean, the, the industry is tough and it moves really fast. Yeah, you have to be patient, but never stop moving in the direction you want to head. He, he, he his ex, one of the exact quotes he said to me is stop being a bloody wimp. Mm-hmm. Keep moving. And he also said the rules are really simple and they're basic life rules. Work hard, love your friends and family, give to those that need, respect and celebrate the successes of yourself. Um, those that help you get there, and most importantly, don't be a dickhead. I, I, 
it's funny that you uh, brought this back around and circled back around to it because the last question I was going to ask you was, did you have any parting thoughts for our, our audience? Um, oh, I'm not done. <laughs> yeah. And, and so this is, this is a perfect, perfect place to go. So, so keep going. Yes. Yeah. I mean, so that, that advice is what I got from Alan. It, and I, I believe that advice is rock solid and it's been hit home about 20, 30 times by one of my very close friends, agents and mentors, Kim Cookie McRae. I mean, she, she has really taken that a step further for me in highlighting this, that we all have our own path. No one has your path. So we need to stop with um, you know, the phrase FOMO, fear of missing out, if you will. Your journey is unique. No one's going to have it except you. You're never too late because you're on your journey. You know, I mean, Jeremy Renner was in honey wagons in his 30s, you know, and didn't really hit it till late 30s. You know, Alan Dale didn't kick into high gear until his late 30s. Morgan Freeman was 52. Judy Dench, 61. You know, uh, Melissa McCarthy was 41. Brian Cranston, 44. There's no deadlines as to when you'll see your big breakthrough. You know, people around you may get ahead of you while others could seem behind but everyone's running their own race, you know, in their own time. Don't envy them. They're fighting the good fight just like you and have the same damn fears. Yep. Celebrate their successes as much as you do your own and always, always thank those that helped you to get those wins. You know, I mean, you, you're, you're your own competition and always seek to learn from what you did the last time around to make sure you work better. You know, keep raising your own bar to compete against yourself, you know? Absolutely. I mean, this industry, this industry is tough and it's very hard to get roles big or small, celebrate every victory and those that helped you get there. Period. I love that. I love that. Thank you for that. Um, and it really makes a lot of sense. You could you can look at the next person and, and covet what they're doing and covet what they have, but they could be over in five years and you could just be beginning. Yeah, I mean that that's that's it, you know. And you've got to you've you've got to be realistic about the work itself. You've got to set realistic and achievable goals, you know. Um, so when I got back into the industry. You know, apart from the music video, my first goal was to book a TV show, you know, and I did as an Australian, you know, I, I was a war reporter on six. I had plenty of voice time and I had a few seconds of FaceTime, but it was a great experience. I got to work with Peter Werner. He's an Oscar award winning director. Right. You know, the, the next goal is I said, okay, great. I want to get another TV job. And this time I want to play an American. So I had to learn the accent. Um, and I want more screen time. And I got that playing an account exec on Nashville and I worked for a few days on that. And then I said, you know what, my, for my very next thing, I want to book a job in Atlanta. You know, I want to work with a different casting director because Finn Cannon had booked me on the first two, you know, so I wanted to work with a different casting director and I wanted my character to have a real human being's name. And I got it on dynasty. You know, and the next the next job after that was I wanted to book with Feldstein Paris, and I did when I booked the Dolly Parton's Heartstrings show, and I had a lot more screen time, had a name, worked with some very 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 talented actors, and fortunate for that. And then I wanted to book 
a feature with some big names. And I just got last weekend, I got offset with Thomas Jane and Hayesh, Jason Patrick and Peter Facinelli on a feature, you know, I, but my goals have been manageable. I've said, okay, I want these things to be the next thing that I can go. Yep. We, we got here. There's been, you know, a handful of great bookings in between those things, you know, lots of dry spells, lots of sweat, countless self tapes, you know, hundreds of self tapes to meet those goals. But every single experience had been valuable and it's grown me. Uh, you know, I'm thankful for it. Really, really damn lucky. I mean, like I said, booking anything big or small is bloody hard to do. So celebrate it. Yeah. And, and and don't discount your ability, um, to actually sit down and create the goal. Right. I think that's the thing that, that might even be separating you and your successes right there is that you have the wherewithal to make a goal and then go execute on it. Yeah. I mean, and that's a whole thing we didn't really get to touch on much. I mean, creating, creating work is equally as important. And take that work as seriously as the stuff that you're booking on someone else's project. You know, um, have the same expectations. Yes. You know, so you team up with people who are like-minded and believe uh, believe that they can create something that is commercially viable. Um, And, yeah, start working. Um, I I also um, have a rule of thumb. I which I think I've learned this really in the last year we create content, but I don't necessarily insert myself in all the content mm-hmm. because I may not be the best person to tell that story. And don't, I don't want to compromise the project just to put myself in something. Mm-hmm. If we can find someone who's going to do a better job telling that story than me, by damn, we need to put them in it. Right. Right. The humility to understand that and to accept that and, and, and know that what's best for the, for the entire project. And yeah. it's yeah. about a big picture view on it. You know, I mean, it, 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 not, not everything you do is so like, if I don't do this, I'm missing out. Think about the next five projects you're going to knock out, you know, in that respect. So, yeah, I'm not going to be in this one, but I'm going to help get this thing off the ground. And we're going to put this person here and I might take a smaller role in something. And that's fine. That's it, man. It's absolutely fine. And and, um, run your own race. That's what I'm going to. Yep. take from this, uh, for sure. And congratulations, by the way, on all of the success, you have five things in pre-production yeah. or, or post-production right now, rather you've got more on the way. Everyone, please follow, uh, Mr. Dean Shortland you will not regret it and, uh, continue to follow his career. He's, he's doing really, really wonderful things. Um, Dean can't thank you enough, brother. This was awesome. Oh, uh, anytime. All right, let's get together soon. And sure. um, uh, again, thank you. I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you soon. We'll go back to a barista parlor and eat uh, burritos and have coffee. Yes, that's <laughs> definitely needs to happen very soon. Uh, very, very, very soon. Let's make it happen, man. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. All right, bye. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find out more information on this week's creative, including links to their projects and social media feeds, 
please visit our website at www.bonsai.film forward slash make it. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative. If you do that, the show will pop right up. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and on Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step toward your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on Show Me How to schedule a free discovery meeting and needs assessment. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.